I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. Coming up, I spoke with Pulitzer Prize writer and physician scientist Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee about his new book, The Songs of the Cell, in which he describes the potential for altering cells to better human health. But first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Artemis is NASA's project to return to the moon. Artemis 1 is the first integrated flight test of NASA's new huge space launch system rocket and an uncrewed version of the Orion spacecraft. Artemis 1 arrived on the launch pad last Friday, November 4th, in preparation for launch on November 14th. The 26-day mission for Artemis 1 includes a flight of the Orion spacecraft around the moon and back to Earth, and also will deploy several small CubeSats along the way for technology demonstration and to study the moon, radiation in space, and a near-Earth asteroid. Artemis 1 will not have a human crew on board, but will have three mannequins outfitted with sensors for testing. The next mission, Artemis 2, will have a live crew of test pilots in the Orion capsule, the first time humans will have flown beyond Earth orbit since 1972, more than 50 years ago. The Artemis II mission, planned to launch in 2024, will also perform a lunar flyby test. Artemis III is planned to land astronauts on the moon. The Orion capsule will dock either with a gateway space station planned to be in lunar orbit so the crew can transfer to a lunar lander, or if the gateway station isn't in flight by then, they will transfer to the lander directly. The $4.1 billion, nearly 3,000-ton Artemis I rocket has had previous launch attempts starting on August 29th that were scrubbed due to technical problems. The upcoming November 14th attempt has a 10-day launch window. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Siddhartha Mukherjee is a practicing physician and research scientist who finds time to write prolifically. His first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. His new book, The Song of the Cell, explores our radical new ability to manipulate cells. Dr. Mukherjee tells the story of how scientists discovered cells, began to understand them, and are now using that knowledge to create new humans. He combines accessible and exciting science writing with his own experience as a researcher, a doctor, and a prolific reader to pull us into the expanding story of cell biology.
welcome to the show. I'm talking with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee about his new book, The Songs of the Cell, which is a great overview of cell biology, the history of cell biology in terms of its researchers, which is really fascinating, and a look at the potential of cells as therapy. So let's just jump right in to the back of the book and maybe you could describe your vision of the songs of the cell as their interactions and how that can be used as a potential medical therapy. Um, I mean, the reason the book is called the song of the cell or the songs of the cell is that I think that we're exploring a completely new universe, a cosmos um, of understanding how cells work, but more importantly, how cells work with each other. Um, for a long time, in the last uh, uh, several decades, uh, we've been able to decipher uh, very spectacular um, insights, or we've been able to find very spectacular insights into how cells work by themselves as autonomous uh, living entities. Uh, we now understand the biology of B cells and T cells and even some of their interactions. Um, but there, but there is a, there's a whole universe to be discovered about how these cells interact with each other to create systems that ultimately are responsible for human physiology. And by human physiology, I mean the 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 workings of the immune system in the in the face of a virus, the workings of a um, the 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 working of the nervous system, and so forth. Um, and so what I mean by the songs of the cell is that once we decipher or begin to decipher these meaningful interactions between cells, not just cells themselves, but these meaningful interactions between cells, we'll be able to find, and we are already finding, a, a completely new um, host of medicines. Some of these rely on um, direct cell transplantation, which means that you take the cell outside the body or you take a stem cell, you convert it into a cell of interest. You know, a great example of this is, I, I don't know how many of you are aware or how many of your listeners are aware, um, there are multiple efforts right now um, that are trying to make pancreatic beta cells, the ones that make insulin, out of stem cells, your own stem cells in some cases, um, and then infuse them back into the body um, so that you can cure type 1 diabetes. Um, I have myself been involved in multiple efforts to take T cells, genetically engineer them, um, and inject them back into the body uh, to cure cancers such as leukemias, lymphomas, um, and other diseases. And in fact, um, through these efforts, we've already treated about, I would say, 15, 20 patients. Um, the world has also seen this. I, I'm not the only person doing this, but um, you know, there have been probably several dozen patients uh, treated with, uh, more than several dozen patients, I should say, treated with so-called CAR-T therapy. Now, these attempts are, as I said, still reside in the, the, the world of single cells, not, 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 the, not the intercommunication between the cells. But we have to, we have to move beyond that world. So for instance, um, you know, in, in the pancreatic beta cell example I gave you, it's not enough to just infuse the cells. Uh, we have to figure out where they're going, where they take up residence, where they best take up residence, 
um, whether whatever organ they might be, maybe they go back to the pancreas, maybe they go inside in the lungs, um, how to protect them from the immune system. So there's, there's a cell-cell interaction right there. Um, similarly, um, when you make a CAR T cell, when you make an engineered T cell to kill cancer, um, you, what we're trying to do is not just inject those T cells, but make sure that they survive for the longest time so that if the cancer would come back, those T cells would arise again, like, uh, like, a, like an army and, and, and snap the cancer back down shut, shut once more. That interaction, uh, the, the, the possibility of, of creating a long lived memory T cell, we know resides not in the T cell itself, but in the T cells interactions with other cells in, um, in um, various parts of the immune system. So, so we're exploring an entirely new world, I think. Um, and that's what's very exciting about it. Yeah, it is so exciting. This um, field has been on the horizon for, for decades now. People started writing about it and experimenting in animal and cell culture models. I remember reading about it in the 90s. And it's so exciting to see it actually bearing some fruit right now. So let's let's delve into a couple of the examples that you give. Like one of them that I was really struck by was um, the monocytes. And I have to say for our listeners, the immune system is just such an incredibly complex system. So we'll just scratch the surface. But the monocytes are a type of immune cells. And one study you spoke of genetically modified monocytes, both to recognize a specific protein associated with a cancer and to make them eat it up faster. So could you talk a little bit about that strategy? Um, absolutely, it's uh, actually work done in my lab in collaboration with um, Ron Vale, who's at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and uh, it is now a company called Myeloid. Um, we um, were very interested in the idea and have been very interested in the idea that, uh, that we could, it, the strange thing about these T cells that we just talked about is that they're very, very good at killing so-called liquid cancers, lymphomas, blood cancers, lymphomas, leukemias, myeloma, but they're very bizarrely restricted in their capacity to kill solid tumors, which are actually a majority of the tumors that human beings have. Breast cancer is an example, colorectal cancer, and so on and so forth. Um, and no one really knows why. We have some ideas why, um, it has obviously something to do with um, the, the, a kind of shell of, uh, again, we come back to this idea of cell-cell interactions. Um, these cells somehow make the, these solid tumors particularly, somehow make the T cells turn away or, or become inactive or exhausted. And there are many theories about how, how they do that um, by secreting particular factors. Now, monocytes are a different part of the immune system. They come from what's called the innate immune system, uh, a different wing of the immune system. And what's interesting about them is that they have an incredible capacity. They're known uh, to be professional trafficking cells. They go everywhere. Um, and in fact, they go into tumors. They traffic very well, in, unlike T cells. They traffic very well into tumors. Um, so Ron and I had this idea a long time ago, but not long, but three, four years ago, that what if we turn monocytes into not T cells, but something like T cells. What, we, what if we armed them and gave them um, the armor that's required to uh, potentially um, kill, a, kill a tumor? 
Um, and so we're making them now and we've actually started infusing patients with them. So we're making these genetically engineered monocytes. Um, we've shown that at least in animals, they track into tumors, unlike the T cells, um, and that they kill um, the, the tumor. Um, and so that's now becoming a human therapy. I don't know if it's going to succeed or not, but, um, but you know, that's, that's, that's the wonderful thing about being a clinical scientist is, or a physician scientist, you take an idea from the laboratory um, or an idea sketched on the back of a napkin and then take it all the way until it becomes potentially a human therapy. Yeah, it's so exciting. It's, it's, it's applied creativity. I, I, I love that story. So let's, let's go down that rabbit hole of engineering the monocytes. Do you, um, do you engineer them to express genes that are typically expressed by T cells so that they have that phagocytic capacity or actually the T cells have a cytotoxic capacity? Well, so monocytes are, are different. Um, they, uh, the monocytes and macrophages, I should say, they're related cells. Um, um, they unlike T cells. So T cells, uh, when they kill their cancers, they do so by throwing basically, I would say, poison bombs at the at the cancer cell. Toxins. Um, they make holes in the cancer cell uh, using very particular uh, enzymes and essentially kill them that way. Um, monocytes and macrophages have a very different way of killing cells, which you just named phagocytosis. The word comes, the phago comes from eating and cytosis means of course, uh, eating a cell. Um, so the monocyte or the macrophage will hug almost like in a bear hug, um, the, uh, the cancer cell and then ingest it. Uh, and I literally mean ingest it, they will eat the cell and then using, again, these very toxic enzymes that they store, they will break it into parts and, and, then, and, and then move along. And often they, can, they, they do their serial killers. They go once, they go twice, they go three times, four times. Now, um, what we've done in the case of the monocytes is that uh, on the outside uh, of the cell, we've attached a, a part of a protein that recognizes the cancer. Um, and that's actually very similar to what happens in T cells on the outside, but inside of the cell, so spanning the cell membrane going inside now, um, instead the monocytes don't use the uh, genes that T cells use. They have special receptors and adapters, which are specialized for phagocytosis. So we first we replaced one of them, um, well, we, we didn't replace, we we basically made a phagocytic receptor. And that monocyte was able to eat um, cancer, uh, cancer cells pretty efficiently. But since then we've added more and more, we've added uh, by making gene fusions, uh, protein fusions, we've added um, a, a domain or a, a piece of a protein to that same receptor, to that same um, you know, molecular harpoon that's sitting outside the surface. On the inside of the surface, we've added a, a protein that's a hyperactivator. Mm -hmm. um, we found it by using a genetic uh, test. Um, and we've actually found more than one, we found two or three. So now the, the, the average uh, genetically engineered monocyte macrophage, instead of eating, let's say five cells at a time, um, it's become, it's, we, uh, we call them super hungry. So they, they now eat 10, uh, sorry, they eat 50. 
wow. uh, at a time. So they become uh, supercharged monocytes, uh, again, with the task of, of going and eating cancer cells. Now, I've seen pictures of phagocytes, those big eater cells that you talked about, similar to monocytes. I've seen pictures of them in, in lungs, so stuffed with crud that they can't take in anymore. Does that happen to these monocytes or do they digest it and then just go back for 50 more? Uh, they, they seem to digest it and go back for 50 more. Uh, what's most interesting about them, and this goes back to the first question you asked, is that they don't stop there. What they do is as they digest the tumor, they then present peptides or parts of the proteins from the tumor to T cells. So they essentially reactivate this, what I would say is, was a previously frozen network uh, of T cells. And so um, once again, we come back to the idea that, that, that nothing is working in isolation. Right. Yeah. They go back and, and then they reactivate the B cells and T cells to now become active against the tumor. So we, we think of them as, we really think of monocytes as pioneer cells because they pioneer um, the attack on, on um, certainly attack on pathogens, but in this case, the attack, the attack on T cells. Um, the monocytes that, that get filled with crud are often filled with things that they cannot digest uh, at a certain point of time. Um, you know, often things like, you know, uh, particles that they cannot digest because they're not digestible. But a cancer cell or any cell or even a bacterial cell is, is quite eminently digestible okay. because um, the enzymes can break them down and, and, and make them into, into smaller pieces. So I also want to mention that in the book, one of the very cool things that you do is you give a lot of personal stories, which I think makes the science more accessible to people. And these include both the scientists as well as the patients that are the initial recipients of these strategies. Um, so for instance, with a slightly different anti-cancer therapy with, um, I believe it was the CAR-T therapy, you profiled the young woman who was the first patient to get this. Could you touch really briefly on her story? I think it's very touching. The story that you're referring to is of Emily Whitehead. I know the Whitehead family very well. Emily Whitehead was the first pediatric patient to receive CAR T cell therapy. And she had a um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, very, very uh, aggressive tumor. And, you know, ALL is one of those tumors that we can actually cure. 90% um, of patients, 80% of patients are cured of ALL using chemotherapy. It's, it's pretty brutal chemotherapy, by the way, almost two and a half years of chemo. But, but at the end of it, uh, although children suffer through it, they get cured, um, but some don't. Uh, and Emily was one of those patients who had so-called relapse refractory ALL. Um, she was waiting for a bone marrow transplant, but even that didn't pan out. Um, so there was no, nothing left for her, no options left for her. And so she enrolled in this experimental trial uh, in which the first CAR T cells against her B cells, which include the, B can the cancer cells come from B cells, um, were uh, deployed. Um, what's uh, astonishing about the story is that this was because she was the first patient, she had so much cancer uh, then growing in her body that the T cells, of course, they kill the cancer cells. But when T cells kill a cell, they sort of go on a rampage. They, they become activated. They become sort of infuriated. Um, and they start recruiting uh, other cells and they start 
uh, secreting or uh, throwing out um, a whole host of chemicals that uh, creates a, a, a very potent, powerful inflammatory response. Um, so potent and powerful that in, in fact, that inflammatory response can kill you. Um, and Emily, unfortunately, had so much cancer, as I said, that she had this very, very powerful inflammatory response um, and, and also was on the verge of death. And by chance, and this, is, this is just shows you how much of medicine happens by chance, by chance, her doctors, one of them had a child who was taking an anti-inflammatory drug for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and uh, they thought, well, you know, since this is such an inflammatory condition, what do we try this uh, anti-inflammatory drug? And uh, Emily had an incredible response to that drug, recovered from her, um, her inflammatory cascade and um, and recovered completely and the cancer has now gone. Um, she's now 17 years old uh, applying to college. I met her about you know a year ago or so um, and I just got a picture of, of her of her uh, father holding a copy of my book um, at, <laughs> at an airport. Um, it's an incredible story. Yeah, yeah, it is. And like you said, it illustrates the sometimes random nature of clinical trials. You can have an outstandingly positive reaction like that, or it could have gone completely the other way. And for many people, it does. And so to go back to one of the other applications of cell therapy that you addressed earlier is um, using stem cells, which is another really exciting potential therapy, but using stem cells to engineer um, or, or to create normal copies of cells that are defective or deficient in some people like, for instance, as you said, diabetes, and then re-inject them to treat these pretty devastating diseases. And I love in your book, you talk about basically creating new a new type of human, one that consists of not only the genetic complement they were born with, but also a slightly different set of genes that allow them to live a more normal life. So can you talk both about the application of that and the, the potential? I mean, there's so much untapped potential here. Yeah, I think the, I think the one thing to first clarify is that, um, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, um, we've talked a lot about gene therapy and genetics and genetic engineering, but you know, gene therapy is really cell therapy. Um, it begins with cell therapy. If you don't get the, a, a gene, which is encoded in a piece of DNA is essentially lifeless without a cell. A cell enlivens a gene. A gene is, or a piece of DNA is just a naked molecule. Um, if you don't put it in the right cell in the right time, in the right place, in the right patient, it's useless. Um, and so all of this is really, all of the cell therapy that we're making uh, or gene or genetic therapy that we're making is really dependent on our understanding of cells, cell networks, and potentially even organ networks. Um, so um, I think that, um, you know, I use this word new human in the book and it's, I, I meant it to be a kind of provocation because, you know, when we, when we talk about new human, there's a way that we talk about you know, humans being, um, the new human being some kind of prosthetic sci-fi um, character, you know, equipped with some infrared uh, equipment or something. I mean, what I call Keanu Reeves in a black mumu um, <laughs> from the matrix. Um, 
But that's not the new human. The new human is, in fact, we're building a kind of new personhood, um, which uh, has to do with you know this combination of cell and gene therapy. Um, uh, I talk in the book about the first IVF baby that was born, Louise Brown, who's living today. Um, she is the new human. We had never imagined that we could create human beings uh, in a petri dish um, and then inject them back into bodies and have them completely formed and fine. Um, who would have thought? Um, and but, but you know, obviously, there are hundreds of thousands of IVF-born babies walking around the world today. Um, you know, there are trials going on for depression and obsessive compulsive disorder in which nerve cell circuits are being stimulated with tiny electrodes to relieve Parkinson's disease, obsessive compulsive disease, depression. Um, that is a prosthetic human um, or what I would call a new human. Um, in fact, you know, the first time people injected just blood um, into another person, transfused blood, they thought that they would emerge as a new person because the they thought that the psyche would be changed by the blood. So, so that's what I mean. These new technologies that are allowing us to have a sense of immense control, um, potentially immense control on the body, on the human body. And those people, the people that are emerging as, as uh, patients um, are, are, are really born anew in some way. And, and that's the new human. Yeah, and, and there's so many of those who would have thought moments in the book, and I'm going to have to leave it there, but I'm going to encourage readers or listeners to read the book, because like I said, there's there's so much that we haven't even been able to scratch the surface. So thank you so much, Siddhartha Mukherjee, for talking this morning. And thank you so much for hosting a program on science. That was Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee talking about his new book, the Song of the Cell, in which he explores the history and potential of manipulating cells to better human health. But he doesn't limit his story to the science. Dr. Mukherjee tells the story of how scientists discovered cells, began to understand them, and are now using that knowledge to create new humans. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced by yours truly and engineered by Shannon Young. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by George Gershwin. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to websites mentioned in the show. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. <laughs>